that. Uh, well, if you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. Uh, probably no surprise that we're still in John. <laughs> we're going to be in it for a while. Uh, our next break from John won't be until, uh, until probably sometime in the new year. We will take a small, well, okay, I'll take that, I'll take that back. We're going to take a small break for Christmas and Christmas Eve, and then uh, we actually have uh, uh, something special planned for the 31st, and I'll share more about that in the future, but uh, that'll be a really fun service as well. So uh, John chapter 5, uh, we're going to be in verses 31 through 37, but before we get into that, let me do just kind of a quick recap, because a lot of the things that we are talking about and what we study through in the Gospel of John all are in, in relation with one another. As we know, God's Word is not written as these individual segments within these books, but rather they are written all as one continuous book or story, and then we later on fragmented those out. So it's good for us to know, okay, what happened before we read the text this morning. So uh, if you weren't here or if you need a recap, uh, the, what we see in the beginning of John chapter 5 is we see Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath. And so for the Pharisees, this was a big no-no. You don't heal somebody or do anything on the Sabbath. And then when confronted about it, Jesus tells him the reason why I'm healing on the Sabbath is because uh, if God, God the Father is working, so I'm also is, work, with work, is working. So basically he makes this, this proclamation that he and God are equal. And so that's what started this conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus and eventually what led Jesus to the cross. So what he's doing is Jesus is giving them this argument on why he can claim to be equal with God. Last week, we looked at how uh, Jesus made the argument how the Son and the Father work differently, but how both are God. And we got into some deep theological waters talking about the doctrine of the Trinity and, and working through all that. And so what we see going on now is Jesus is really giving almost his concluding argument on why he can claim to be equal with God. And so when I look at this, it's almost as if he's in a courtroom proceeding, like they, they have him up on the stand or they're making accusations about him. And then he is saying, you know, this is why I can claim these things. But in this section of scripture, verses 31 through 47, he actually calls on four different witnesses. And now when we think of uh, courtroom dramas or films or anything like that, that comes to mind, I always Think about the drama and suspense that comes from a witness taking the stand. You'd write like the music always swells up and they're like, I call so-and-so to take the stand. And sometimes it's a surprise and sometimes it's not. And either the attorney is eating uh, the witness's lunch or wit the witness is providing so much evidence that the court can't help but side with them or at least the one they're associated with. And, and you know, I, I don't know if this works for real cases and, and David may be able to correct me on this, but a good witness or a bad witness can make or break a case, at least when we see that in uh, media. And one of the things that I think of when I think of courtroom dramas or courtroom proceedings is actually a, uh, a sitcom from the early 2000s called Malcolm in the Middle. And if you're familiar with the show, it's basically about a, uh, a kid who grows up in this family. He's a boy genius. And it's about him growing up the middle child of like four different boys. And so uh, in one of the episodes, his dad is accused of corporate espionage and of embezzling millions of dollars from this company he's worked at for 15 years. And so they have all this evidence planted against him. Uh, they talked about all these dates that he made these illegal transactions and all this other stuff. And then uh, the, the lawyer calls him to take the stand. 
And then he goes to the stand and, and he tells them, look, I'm a terrible employee. <laughs> He's just honest with the, the jury. He tells them, I, I, I couldn't have done any of these things. I, I can barely know how to tie my own shoes. And then uh, he goes to the board and he looks at it and he says, uh, did you notice that every one of those dates is on a Friday? And he said, if you check the calendar, look, every one of those days is on a Friday. Every day that they claim that I did something illegal. And then the lawyer goes, well, why is that significant? And then he looks at him and he says, because I haven't worked on a Friday in over 15 years. And all of a sudden his face grows gloomy. He's like, can we scratch that from the record? Like he, he doesn't want his, his company to know. He doesn't want him to find out. And then it, it proceeds with this montage of everything he did on those Fridays from he went go kart, go uh, golf cart, or not golf carking. He went go-karting. Uh, he went to SeaWorld. He fed Shamu. He did all these other things like just he just had fun every Friday for 15 years and skipped work. And so obviously, whenever all that got laid out, he had receipts and all that, uh, the case was dropped and he was found not guilty. Uh, but then the episode ends with his wife saying, you haven't worked on a Friday for 15 years? And then that's where it ends. But anyway, so a, a good or bad witness can make or break a case in um I said last week that we were diving into some deep theological waters, and this is still going to be pretty deep, but it won't be maybe like it was last week. Instead, what we're going to be looking at is we're looking at four different witnesses that can attest that Jesus is the Messiah. These four witnesses are taking this hypothetical stand to make a case for Jesus being the Messiah. And one of these witnesses is even the scriptures themselves. And I'm excited to talk about that one. So if you're taking notes, here are the four major witnesses that Jesus calls on um, in his final concluding argument with the Pharisees. The first is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the first witness to Jesus being equal with God. The second is the works of Christ or his miracles. So if you're taking notes, John the Baptist, the second, his miracles or uh, the works of Christ. The third witness is God the Father, and the final witness is the Scriptures. Now, some people, if, you're, if you read any Bible studies on this or commentaries or listen to anything, some will argue there's a fifth one in there, but I think that that fifth one goes along with the Scriptures pretty closely when he says that Moses uh, talked about him uh, even before he came onto the scene. And so let's look at these four witness accounts and let's look at why this argument is so solid and really ask ourselves the question at the end of all this is when is it enough for us to believe that Jesus is the Christ? So John chapter five, verses 31 through, through 47 says this, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, and the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not believe his word. You do not, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is, that they, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. 
but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who's, who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I just pray as we study this text and God, look at these different witnesses who attest to who Jesus is. God, I pray that you would help us to understand, Father, in our hearts who Jesus truly is. God, there's so many different things that, that, that argue for and teach, Father, how you are real, how you love us, how you care for us and our need for a Savior. God, there's many that would argue that either you don't exist or Jesus couldn't have done all these things. But Father, you make it so abundantly clear in your work and your evidence and your creation that you are who you are and Jesus is who he is. God, I pray that for anyone in this room who maybe is struggling with that, Father, who keeps asking the question, well, maybe if I see this, then I'll believe. Or maybe if I, if I witness this, then I'll believe. God, help them to see, Father, you have laid out in your word everything that we need to see and everything that we need to know to know you and trust you as Savior. And God, I just pray, uh, Father, for who all, who all who are not feeling well this morning, God, who are struggling with illnesses or uh, things with post-procedures or even with grieving. God, I pray that you'd be with them this morning and God, remind them of your goodness and your love as you remind us of your goodness and your love. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen. So when we look at this passage, it's interesting the way Jesus starts this out. And notice if you've got your Bibles, depending on how it's broken down, we didn't do verse 30 because verse 30 was last week and a part of kind of a summary statement of everything he had just argued. But Jesus starts with something that may seem a little strange. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So what did Jesus mean by that? I mean, is Jesus not trustworthy? I mean, he is sinless. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. I mean, really, if anyone should be able to bear witness about himself and it be honest and truthful, it's Jesus. <laughs> like he's probably the only one that we can really go. Well, if Jesus says it, it's true. But what he is, what he's appealing to, what he's doing is he's referring to the practice of trials in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, when someone broke the law or they were accused of breaking the law, you couldn't just go and say, so-and-so did this, I witnessed it. And then they immediately were given the death penalty because a lot of what they would do would require death. Instead, what they did was they required that there be multiple witnesses to what had happened, and those witness accounts had to match in order for there to be such a, an accusation to be claimed as truthful. Now, there have been times where there may have been, um, there have been exceptions to that, but the general rule was that you provide multiple witnesses to what you are claiming to be true. And so that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's presenting his case to these Jewish leaders who know the law, who know these proceedings, who, uh, who he is trying to, to show them who he is in good and sound argument. And so 
What he does is he goes above and beyond. He doesn't just provide one or two good witnesses. He provides four fantastic, irrefutable witnesses to who he is. And the first one is John the Baptist. So if you got your Bibles, 33 through 35 is Jesus describing John the Baptist, his life in this first witness. Now, something that we need to look at in this passage is a phrase that he uses in 34. So if you look at 34, at 34, he says, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so you may be saved. So something that Jesus does before he even gets into John the Baptist or before he even gets into all that he's about to go through is he's making this proclamation that Jesus ultimately doesn't need testimony to be who he is. Jesus is God. What he says is final. What he does is final. In all reality, he doesn't need man to affirm his deity. Instead, he provides these witnesses. He provided John the Baptist as a forerunner. He does all of these things so that we would what? Be saved. He does these things so that we would believe. He does these things so that we would trust him. He does these things, provide these testimonies, provide these witnesses for you and for me to know him and to glorify him. So now with John the Baptist, when we think about uh, what had happened with him beforehand, I mean, the, John the Baptist was somebody who kind of started to stir up things at his time. And something that the Pharisees did with the Pharisees recognized there was something different about him. So they actually sent some of their leadership to go and ask him questions. And if you remember from a few months ago, how that conversation went, the very first thing that John the Baptist did was said, no, I'm not the Messiah. Cause he knew that that question was on their minds because everything that was happening and transpiring, it, it, it began to kind of stir the waters on is the Messiah here. And some of them believed that was John the Baptist and John the Baptist immediately shuts that down. And instead he shares that he is not, the Messiah, but he is the one that is a forerunner to the Messiah, telling them to repent and believe and telling them that Jesus is coming. And then he describes how John the Baptist is like a burning lamp for a time and the Pharisees rejoiced in his light. When we look at John the Baptist's life, when we look at his ministry, we saw very early on that the Pharisees were actually excited and, and happy about what was going on. I mean, they, they went to him to ask all these questions to know, is, is, is this happening? Is the Messiah here? I mean, imagine being someone who has devoted your life to this text, hoping and waiting for someone to, to change everything and for this hope that the Messiah is here. And so John the Baptist it being the forerunner, being the one that Isaiah calls to is the one that is in the woods that's going to go out before Jesus He's here and it's happening and he provides a good witness to that. But here's the problem. The thing that John the Baptist said was going to happen, happened. The Messiah arrived. He was here. And what happened with the Pharisees? They didn't rejoice anymore. They rejoiced for a season. But now that the thing that John the Baptist said was going to happen, happens, the religious leaders have completely soured to him and to Jesus. 
And you know, the other, the other way that we can look at it too, when you think of a lamp, especially back at this time, it's not like a, not like a lamp in our house when we have a light bulb, we turn it on and it stays on for an indefinite amount of time, except for if you got it on one of those like timers or um, if it's, if, it, if your power goes out, like, you know, for, for example, my, my wife's grandpa had uh, these, these timers everywhere in his house, everything was on a timer. And so like every light, every lamp, everything was, was set on those Christmas light timers everywhere. It was really cool, but also kind of terrifying as someone who works in IT where it's like, I was like, that's a fire hazard and that's a fire hazard and that's a fire hazard, but it worked out. But anyways, so it wasn't like a lamp is now or a light is now. Instead, it was like a, like a fire. And so at some point, fire goes out or begins to lose its light. And with John the Baptist, as Jesus's ministry increased, John the Baptist's decreased which was the entire point of his ministry. And then at some point, John the Baptist is killed before Jesus goes to the cross. And so John the Baptist was a great witness to Jesus. But the Pharisees, although rejoicing at first, eventually soured on this witness and the message that John the Baptist had to bring. So then what's the next witness that Jesus calls to? The next witness he calls to, verses 36 through 30, or uh, no, just verse 36, is the works of Christ. He says, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John, saying that the things that I have, the things that I'm doing, are even better than the things that John the Baptist was saying about me. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, this may seem a little strange. It almost seems like Jesus is calling himself as a witness to the stand, which I don't know if that happens a lot in court proceedings. That might be kind of odd to call yourself in as a witness. Yeah, you've got a witness to the things that you may have done, but when you call in a witness, it's normally someone who, who is not the person being accused of the crime. But Jesus isn't necessarily calling on himself as person. He's calling on his actions, his miracles, his signs. The things that we've seen him do in scripture that have shown who he is. He's pointing to his actions and his miracles that these Pharisees know about. Even so far as to talking about the, the one that we just saw at the beginning of chapter 5 when he heals the man by the pool of Bethesda. See, Jesus isn't just claiming that he's the Messiah. He isn't just saying that with words. He's showing that with his actions. He is doing the things that only God can do. Only God can make something out of nothing. Only God can heal in the way that Jesus is healing. Only God can raise people from the dead. And as we will see later on, Jesus does that with Lazarus, and then he does that himself. What he's saying is, is, is the witnesses of his works should be enough for them to see that he is the Messiah. So then this kind of bleeds into his next witness. It really, really just kind of goes right into it, which is the next witness being the father. And the father who has sent me him has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have seen, or his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And one of the things about this that's interesting is that if you remember in John at Jesus' baptism, and this is in other scriptures too, but particularly with John um, whenever we look at Jesus's baptism, if you remember what's happening in that is that Jesus goes to be baptized and 
uh, you see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove going on to Jesus, the Son. And then you have God the Father saying from heaven audibly for all to hear, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So first, I got to say, I guess these Pharisees weren't there for that, because <laughs> to hear God's voice audibly, I mean, you can't you can't get more crystal clear than that, that this is this is the, the son of God. So obviously they didn't hear these things happening, but also they've never seen God in form. They've never heard his voice, but yet they still believe in God. They 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 literally they literally invest their entire livelihood of knowing God and serving him and knowing his word, at least the Old Testament at the time. And so they, they claim to believe in God, but yet they do not believe in Jesus. And God the Father himself is bearing witness about Jesus, not just what we see him at the baptism, but his equality with God and for what we saw in the works that Jesus does. He is constantly showing how he and God are equal. Now, Jesus makes a statement towards the end of this in verse 38 that, that, seem, that it seems strange. And if you've read John, this word is actually very familiar with you. And it, I know it is for me. And it's this word to abide. And to abide really means to remain. So your Bibles might say, uh, and, and I do not remain with you or, or you remain with me. It's, it's, it's kind of the same word. And we see this language used a lot in John 15, and we're eventually going to get into John 15. And that's going to be a, a great passage to walk through. But essentially what Jesus is arguing is that the word being Jesus does not abide in them because they do not believe. And this kind of goes back to what Jesus described when he said he wouldn't entrust himself to all men that there would be people that claim to know Jesus. There'd be people that claim to be saved, but have no relationship with him. They may claim to know God, but Jesus is not abiding in them. So these men do not believe, and therefore they do not believe the testimony from God the Father, and therefore Jesus does not abide in them. So what's this last witness? This last witness is the Scripture's themselves. We're looking at verses 39 through 40. He calls to the stand his last witness, and, and, and this last witness arguably is one the Pharisees should be very familiar with. They've memorized most of the Old Testament. I mean, they, you think that you know the Bible. These guys knew the Bible. But the problem was, although it was here, it was never here. And he makes this claim in the scriptures that they attest to who he is. And so what I want to show you guys is this diagram. Um, if you look to the TV. So it's not just a bunch of pretty colors. One of the things that uh, I've come to discover about God's word, especially as I've read it and in, in its entirety or in, in, in small chunks or in big chunks, is as you see the overarching story of scripture all in one. Now, Here's the cool thing about this diagram. What this diagram is, is it's every cross-reference to Jesus in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So every prophecy about Jesus and every one he fulfills. Do you see how many cross-references there are? Oh, I, I was once at a conference and someone described how many, um, how many pro how, like the likelihood of someone even, even coming on and, and fulfilling five of the prophecies about Jesus. 
Did you know that even someone, someone statistically coming in to, to, uh, uh, to fulfill five of the prophecies about Jesus, you have a better chance of winning the lottery twice than somebody fulfilling five prophecies of Jesus. But look at this. Jesus fulfilled every one of these prophecies. He's mentioned at the very beginning of God's word, and he is there all the way at the end. He is all over scripture. These men knew God's word, but they didn't see him. He's been there all along. Jesus isn't some random character who pops up most of the way through a book and came out of nowhere. Jesus has been alluded to and has been talked about since the beginning in Genesis. He's always been there. Yes, he's not been necessarily the Jesus we see right now in the flesh and form and all of that, but, but he has been there and he has been talked about. And so when we look at the story of God's redeeming love, the Bible being all about that, I, I, I'm going to share with you guys something that um, a pastor friend of mine showed me. And, uh, and honestly, when I've tried to see the original source of this, I can never find it, but I do not want to take credit for this. And Micah, you've, you've heard this. This was from, this is the thing Jeremy shared with us at the deacons meeting. Um, but there's a, there's a wonderful, uh, I, I would say, illustration, not only with this, but it goes with it on where we see Jesus in every book of the Bible. So what I want to do this morning is I want to read for you every uh, just large reference to Jesus in the different books of the Old Testament. And so we're only going to go one book at a time. Uh, But in the first one in Genesis, Jesus is the seed of a woman that would crush the head of the serpent. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of God's people. In Leviticus, Jesus is the great high priest who intercedes for us. In Numbers, Jesus is the water in the desert, our living water. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the coming prophet who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army, defeating our ultimate enemies. In Judges, Jesus is the true king, delivering us from evil and injustice. In Ruth, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In 1 and 2 Samuel, Jesus is the greater prophet and priest. In 1 and 2 Kings, Jesus is the greater king. In First and Second Chronicles, Jesus is the son of David who comes to reign eternally. In Ezra and Nehemiah, Jesus is the one who restores worship and protects his people. In Esther, Jesus is our advocate, putting his life on the line to restore us to royalty. In Job, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. In the Psalms, Jesus is the Holy One who would never see corruption. In Proverbs, Jesus is the personified wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is our true meaning. In Song of Solomon, Jesus is our faithful and devoted love. In Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, Jesus is the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, Jesus is the one who assumes the wrath of God on our behalf. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the Son of Man. In Daniel, Jesus is the one in the fire with us. In Hosea, Jesus is the husband who stays faithful to us when we betray him. In Joel, Jesus is sending his spirit to his people. In Amos, Jesus delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, Jesus is the judge of those who do evil. In Jonah, Jesus is the greater missionary who pursues the undeserving with mercy. In Micah, Jesus is the one who casts our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, Jesus proclaims a future world with peace beyond our imagination. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the one who crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the warrior who is mighty to save. In Haggai, Jesus restores our worship. In Zechariah, Jesus is the pierced Messiah that pierced our transgressions. In Malachi, Jesus is the son of the righteous one 
who brings healing to his people. These, th this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the references to Jesus in the Old Testament. A very, very broad version of that. In fact, at one point, Jesus actually has this conversation with his disciples and describes to them all the times in Scripture that, that reference Jesus. I, I can't imagine that was a short conversation, but I can imagine that was one of those light bulb moments, right? Whenever you have an epiphany or clarity or something, that's, that's what we see here. And so Jesus is not just in the New Testament. Jesus is not just in the Old Testament. Jesus is throughout God's word, and all of these are prophecies that he has fulfilled. No one else can do that but Jesus. And so then he called his last witness, and now we have the final verses in this passage. Basically, it kind of feels like a closing statement. <laughs> like, like if someone were to give a closing statement or their argument, this is, this is really where Jesus says, or almost is like, okay, this is it. This is, this is the rest of it. I, there's nothing more I can really tell you to further convince you because Jesus knows these men's heart are completely hardened to him. So he gives this closing statement and he tells them that these men are willing to give glory that for, to those who come in the name of others, but they do not give glory to Jesus, the only one deserving of it. They're willing to give glory to people who come in their own name or in the name of maybe Nicodemus or or in another high up Pharisee or other religious leader. But when it comes to Jesus coming uh, in the name of God to save us of our sins, they, they don't give him glory, nor do they, do they see that in him. And then Jesus makes this profound statement. He says that they do not have the love of God in them. That the love of God is not in them. They are lost. And he ends with referencing that he was the one that Moses said would come after him. And these are people that, again, devoted their lives to the Old Testament, but saw Moses as really the person to follow after. But yet, even with Moses' words, they were not enough to convince these men of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is much greater than Moses or any man ever could be. And so, all of this isn't enough for them. And if they aren't going to listen to Moses, to the Scriptures to the Father, to the works of Jesus, to John the Baptist, and who are they going to listen to? See, it's heartbreaking, really, to, give, to see Jesus give such a clear, concise argument, but it fall on deaf ears. You know, part of that is, is where I really believe that the Holy Spirit has to help us to really see our need for Him. Because alone, even with facts and logic, we, we can't come to that knowledge on our own. We need the one who can save us to soften our hearts so that we can know him and trust him. So let me, let me end this and break this down for you in kind of our final application point. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and had the authority to do so. The religious leaders hated him for it and wanted to kill him. Then Jesus made his case. He explained his equality with God and that he was Lord over life and death. He is the judge and he is worthy of honor. He explains how to have eternal life. He presents a clear case of evidence from four witnesses on who he is. And he even draws on Moses in the scriptures to drive his point home. And can we show that slide one more time? It's, it should be the next one there. So here's my question for you, church. My question for you who are sitting here. Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you're new to all this. Here's my question for you. For those who are struggling with their belief and trusting Christ, or those that have never put their faith in him, 
My question for you is, when is it enough? What more evidence do you need? What more logic paths or signs or anything else that, that needs to be made clear for you? How is this not clear enough? Statistically speaking, nobody could have done any of this. But Jesus did. When is it enough? When is it enough for you to finally see that Jesus is, is worthy of all worship and honor and praise and that he is worthy of our trust? For those who are believers in this room, maybe you're going through a season where you are struggling to trust God with big things and small things. My, my question for you is, is, is why? When we serve a God who does all this and who loves us and makes these things clear for us and completely shows that, that his life are in our hands, why, why, why do we doubt? Why do we struggle? For those who have maybe never trusted in Jesus or, or, or truly put their faith in him, what more do you need to see? Because he makes this clear for us and he does this not for our own good or not for not only for himself, but he does this so that you and I would know him and believe in him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we pray for this time of invitation, Father, as we have an opportunity to respond to your text. God, I pray for those that, that know you in this room, Father, that would claim faith in you, Father, that they would see all these things, to see the way Jesus lays his evidence out, to see the way Jesus is equal with God, to see all of these things, and Father, that their trust in you would be strengthened. And God, for those who maybe have never professed faith in Christ, who've never put their trust in you, God, I pray that they would look at all of these things and truly see that you are worthy of all worship and honor and praise, and Father, that you are real. So God, we thank you for today. We pray over this time of invitation. To your sons, let me pray. Amen.